Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. Yeah, thank you for being here today, Rob. Um, super excited to have you on and learn more about Endure Apparel. Um, you know, if you want to take it away and, and share more about what Endure Apparel is and share a little bit more about yourself as well. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. Super stoked to be here and chat all things D2C, e-com, brand, whatever, wherever we're going to go. Um, so yeah, I'm Rob Fraser, CEO, founder of Endure. Um, we're a performance sock brand, athletic lifestyle brand founded in 2016 here in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Um, beautiful place to run a business. It's, uh, yeah, it's a uh, super engaged athletic community here and it's uh, a lot of founders and, and business owners live here as well so it's super cool um but taking it back to starting the business i um spent the 10 years prior racing mountain bikes um at an elite level on the national team here five years in a row representing our country at the world championships um uh, so traveling the world racing my bike and you know my early 20s started to see the writing on the wall that this wasn't going to provide long-term economic stability uh, so started questioning you know what's next um, but hadn't really pondered that question for the 10 years prior and kind of found myself in this weird space where i was lost i was like okay i chased this huge goal and accomplished a lot of a lot of the things i set out for over 10 years and then all of a sudden i find myself not really waking up with that fire of like what's going to happen next what are we going to do or what am i going to do um so i kind of went through this two-year period of like dabbling with school and different jobs and then soon realized like i need another really big goal um and so i kind of stumbled upon the idea like hey i'll start a business you know in the athletic space how can i still be an athlete or still kind of use those skills or that that mindset i had as an athlete and translate that into something else and so I kind of coined it like the sport of business. So I was like, okay, this will be my new thing. I'm going to like go all in. I'm going to learn. I'm going to try real hard. And that kind of led to creating Endure. And like the name really was around what I liked about sport. I liked the idea of endurance or the ability to endure, the ability to kind of move forward without giving up and persist. Um, so kind of using that as a basis to start. Um, and thinking like, you know, what's an underserved product category? Um, and then as a, as a cyclist, socks are culture. It's quite literally the way we express ourselves, differentiate ourselves. And even when I was racing, you know, I'd, I would wear different colored and patterned socks. And it's how my teammates or parents or, or others would identify me on the hill. Because it's, it's pretty, uh, you're, you're there and then you're gone. And everyone looks relatively the same. Um, so that was really like formed the basis for starting the brand. And didn't really have any big goals. I was in school at the time. I was like, more than anything, this was to, to kill time and avoid getting a real job or entering the real world. Um, but slowly thereafter, you know, started to catch some traction and really identified a white space where we combined, you know, the high performance, innovative and kind of technical nature of performance socks and then combined them with the sort of 
um, expressive and bold designs so people could express themselves and then move and transcend throughout the day living an active lifestyle. We wanted to decouple socks being um, sport specific and really bring them into true kind of active wear where we identified that like the everyday athlete doesn't want to bring two, three pairs of socks to go from work to casual to the gym. And similar to what we saw happening in you know, athleisure with every other brand with Lulu and Nike and all these others were like the yoga pant and everything for men and from Lululemon. And I was like, I felt socks had been left behind. I was like, it's still all sports specific. It's all still boring. Um, it's, it's, yeah, there wasn't one brand I, I identified that was like kind of really focusing on the sports I liked and then also all the active wear. So yeah, that was kind of like formed the basis of like how I got to starting the business, what the idea was. And then, you know, shop as 2016. So Shopify was kind of coming into its own at the same time. And so I started selling through e-commerce and was like, well, this is, you know, probably one of the better ways to sell socks because the reality is, is you can't try them on in the store anyways. There's a health issue with it. Um, they're also small and easy to ship. So I was like, okay, you know, and like, I'm, I'm speaking a lot in hindsight. I wasn't like some, like, I, I honestly didn't even really think too much about all of these things that now make sense. Um, and I, I want to highlight that I'm not like, I had no master yeah, yeah, plan yeah. or I had like no real unique insights. I was just no, kind of like No, but you fumbling. do uncover the pain points. Like you realize more and more as you learn, you know, what are the objections from people, um, you know, before they buy the product and, um, and you, you get to sort of, you know, peel the, the layers as you have more experience in the space and understand, wow, there actually are bigger problems and pain points here than I originally thought. Yeah, exactly. It all started from just kind of scratching my own itch and solving my own problem, but then realized like, hey, there's probably like millions of other people that also have this problem. And then I would be, you know, it'd be a benefit to listen to how they feel I could improve the brand and product. And so, you know, early days started to develop a brand ambassador network and a great feedback loop from our customers. And we were bootstrapped for five years, all the way up to eight figures in revenue and really just spent a long time like listening to our customers, making the right moves around building the brand thoughtfully, innovating the product and just really focusing on long term sustainability of the brand product and what we're doing in business. So, um, yeah, to your point of asking customers and really listening to feedback is like we've truly evolved and built our brand based on what we've heard the people that interact with us want and want us to go and then apply our own layer of innovation and thought and uh, and keep moving in that direction. Yeah, that reminds me, uh, David, who we just had from Bushbaum. Um, it was the same thing where, you know, he, he he's now at eight figures and he's like, oh, wait a minute. This can actually be like a hundred million dollar business. And, you know, his first years were like 30, 80,000. He thought he was just solving one problem. And then it turned out, you know, to be a whole category of, of problems that make the market actually big enough to be able to expand into. And um, so I, I love what you mentioned because I grew up with, you know, extreme sports and loving extreme sports. I grew up surfing in the Caribbean. Um, I love snowboarding. I love skateboarding. And I think entrepreneurs who are like extreme sports have a competitive advantage um, going into business because there is nothing more brutal than like trying to learn really well, like skateboarding or surfing. You basically have to eat shit over and over so it's definitely you know different than than like any other kind of sport um and it's it's a fact in business that you will obviously eat shit over and over so um i love that about you guys um i also grew up with friends who were you know surfers and 
and stuck to like trying to make surfing their career. And it is so hard to become like what you mentioned about making it your career. Uh, you see these top 1% athletes in extreme sports and um, there's just not like really enough money in, in these industries. Um, and so my next question would be like, what, what was your background um, before you started indoor? Like, you know, did you, were you, were you work, were you were like mountain biking was your actual career at the time? Yeah, it was my everything. And then like, it's a seasonal sport, obviously. Um, so in the winters I would work just the odd jobs. And so I, I did get my, did my like tour of duty doing like the world's worst jobs, like everything from, you know, Home Depot sales associate to bike mechanic to waking up at five in the morning to weigh liquor bottles to counteract overpouring at bars, right? So like, I really did get to sample the worst side of the, the labor market, um, which I think is unique because to your point, being an athlete, an extreme sport athlete, um, and just, you know, an athlete in general teaches you so many things about perseverance and how to how to learn from from losses you know like i lost almost all the races that i attended right i won a few but uh an athlete's career is generally made up of a significant amount of losses and learning from those to capitalize on them and learn from them and then have the big wins that make uh make for the career over time but so that taught me a lot about kind of you know how to be resilient and how to to go after big goals how to weigh risk versus reward, um, how to self-promote myself. So I negotiated also all my own contracts. So I learned a lot of the business fundamentals from sport. And then in the off season would learn just a lot about how much I didn't want to work a regular job and how, and, and but also at the same time realize I just had to do my time. You know, I think like when I look to founders that maybe don't make it or people have the wrong mindset, it's like they feel like they're owed something. Um, and I think athletics teaches you that like, everything is earned you can't just fake it there's no like you have to put the work in and, and that work is done when no one's looking um and you're not shouting from the mountaintops about it you can't raise money to to accelerate your athletic career you got to just do the work so i'm a fan of like you know like the people that actually just get started and 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 just ship product and learn as they go and iterate and bootstrap and i'm not i'm not adverse to raising money but i think you should learn how to make money before you raise money um, I think there's a skill set and there's a level of kind of prudence and just um, self-constraint you need to learn as an entrepreneur, especially in your first startup or, um, you know, on e-commerce or whatever, like you're just not, not letting money on fire. There's other ways to actually build business models that, that make money. But, you know, other than athletics and working the odd jobs, I didn't have any formal business experience. I definitely learned on the go. Um, you know, podcasts, things like what you're doing were super helpful. YouTube series, books. Uh, not even so much having a network of other entrepreneurs. I didn't really start talking to other people doing it until like three, four years in. I didn't know they existed where I live and turns out there's a huge community here, which is now great and welcomed me in and it's super, super fulfilling, but uh, really was just using, you know, books, podcasts and, and other resources as mentors and just kind of figuring it out as I went. For sure. I love learning from other people in podcasts as well, because you know, you can't, sure, you can reach out to somebody you really look up to, but you can also just watch one of their interviews and podcasts and answer the question yourself of like, what would this person do in this situation? And after hearing how they think for an hour, you can almost, you know, get their advice without having to solicit um, or waste anyone's time. Um, but I, you know, so 
you mentioned that the biggest challenges in mountain biking is like you lose a lot of races and then you get the big wins right so like i think the equivalent of that in the business world is like you know you 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 try a lot of things nothing works and then you get big breakthroughs that make up for all of that time that you were trying to crack that nut on something so like what was that what were some of those breakthrough points in the early days for endure that you know it's not working it's not working and then you know something allowed you to break through um, for exponential growth that, that made up for all those failures. Yeah, that's a great point. I think like, yeah, businesses are like just a lot of hitting your head against the wall until you, you eventually hit an inflection point. Um, and I think that's like the, the hardest part of a business. I always say like success in business is about staying in the game long enough to make sense of what you're doing, being able to use enough of your own intuition backed by hindsight and some wisdom that you're gaining along the way. It's, it's just so damn hard that unless you actually start to accrue that real data of operating, um, you don't have those years to look back on. So like what I focused on early is just like, you know, casting a wide net and seeing what would work, what didn't. The best distribution models to sell the socks through. So, you know, we started not just D2C e-commerce. We got into stores. We partnered with events. We did white label custom socks. We did ambassador deals. We just really try to do a whole bunch of different things and seeing what was going to be the stickiest, what had like the greatest return on investment, uh, what maybe devalued the brand, um, and then slowly but surely iterate on that over and over again. Um, but I'd say like the biggest inflection point for us was honestly around COVID um, because, you know, for e-commerce brands, COVID pulled the future forward by many years and forced everyone to shop online almost overnight. And what we had been doing was building a, a digitally native, you know, e-commerce athletic brand um, that, you know, overnight was basically the leader in the space in Canada, right? So like the majority of our competitors at the time, um, A, were all American, B, were all sold as wholesale for the most part as the first channel. So go in the store and buy the, the pair of socks from competitor A, B, and C. You know, their business model gets shot off overnight and they've got clunky from all other, like from my, my view of shitty e-commerce experience. And we had been really methodically thinking of the best way to talk about and sell and convert sock sales online. Um, and so when everyone went online, it was like, we found ourselves at this inflection point that we could have never planned for, right? Like, you know, no one saw it coming within reason. And uh, everyone was planning for the worst. And, you know, you, you couldn't, you, nobody could really anticipate that it would, you know, increase their business 10x. Yeah, and look, and it, it had the adverse effect on many other businesses, and that's worth noting, and that sucks, and I feel for them. But like, definitely in our space, it was this culmination of like, not only did the whole world shift to buying online, there was also a heightened awareness of the benefits of physical fitness and being healthy. And we sold a relatively low cost product that could put a smile on people's face during a dark time that also you know, inspired them to get out for a bike ride or run a walk. Really the only thing you could have done at that time during lockdown. And so I think there's the, the through line there, like the underlying story is that like, sometimes you just have to build and you can't forecast or rely on these huge events to happen that you're able to catch a tailwind. But 
unless you were building and doing the things and like staying true to your vision and mission, you never would have been able to capture the opportunity. And if you think of it, it's like the social media companies captured the opportunity of when like the internet was mature enough, but then mobile phones came out. And that's where Instagram like hits the sweet spot, but they were building in advance. Um, and then if you take it further back, there's the like web one, now web two, now web three. So it's like these things could not have existed at different periods of time, but they would never have existed if they weren't building to hit the inflection point. So it's like, you can't time it, which makes it tough, but at the same time, it makes it really exciting because, uh, and it's never too late. Like you can still hit the e-commerce trend right now and you can still create new social apps. TikTok, you know, didn't hit the sweet spot in timing, but broke out from other reasons, exactly. But there is a power to building and spotting opportunity and then leaning in and trying to capture that tailwind. So on the back of COVID, we really just decided, you know, like, this is our, our moment. So we're going to get on our toes and not on our heels. We're going to double down on building the brand, even though things are unknown. Um, and that really is where we went from like a team of four people and low digit millions to over 25 people and eight figures in like just a year and a half. Um, so it was, it was a pretty crazy ride. Um, yeah. And we're That's still amazing. kind of doing that now and really just playing to win, you know? Yeah, for sure. That's the game we're all playing. Um, so, so you know, going back to to the tests that you performed to find those channels, can you share with the audience a little bit more of like when you guys started first testing all the distribution channels? Was there a process established? And here's how we're going to test all these channels. If these channels don't work by X, we're going to move to another channel. Um, were you trying all the channels at the same time? Did you give a period to each one, move on to the next? What was that approach and how have you refined that process to today? Yeah, I'd love to sit here and tell you I was like some genius who had a master plan, but honestly, I was just like some kind of shithead kid throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what stuck. There was like some method to the madness for sure, but in the early days, I really prioritized just moving quickly rather than trying to analyze and I realized that like the more I could do and then finally just sit back and reflect and then just iterate and do more was way more beneficial than me sitting down and trying to like write out a plan, analyze the data. You know, like I didn't know enough. The sample size was too small. I think like a big problem I see with maybe young startup founders or, or, or even just people in business is that they emphasize planning way too much in the early days. And there's a time and place for planning. But I think the more you plan and the more you analyze, the more you get like analysis paralysis. It becomes almost impossible or too big of a mountain to climb. I like to think of like one step at a time and really just focusing on like the few steps in front of me rather than like looking up to the top of the mountain because like that's just really scary. But if I focus on three steps at a time, it's like, okay, this is super digestible. I'll focus on this one thing today. So when I look at the channels, you know, for me, it was local events. It was building an ambassador network. It was building organic social media. So at the time, Facebook and Instagram for the most part. Um, and that was really the start. So like, you know, how many people could I get excited about representing the brand and being kind of like a micro influencer? And okay, if I get 10 people and then arm them with a referral code, does that make them, you know, refer two people, three people? What's the kind of, what's the math there? slowly but surely start to figure out what that looks like and then build a program there and then organic social media is like how do i get more followers and then as i gain followers does that correlate to some sales can we draw some some conclusions there um, and then local events was just like on the ground brand building for us can i get the brand in front of people's eyes get socks on their feet and then find a way to incentivize them to come purchase some more so those are like the kind of real hit the ground running ways to start for me as also I was going to I was in school at the time and I would literally take a, 
a uh, like a box of socks to school and just literally like force people to buy them in the halls in class my teachers and they were really supportive um but like there's a power to just like going and beating on doors and hitting the pavement when you're a young founder right and kind of from there it progressed to trying digital strategies so like hey could we partner with larger brands say red bull for example and partner with them on one of their events so that we can give a pair of socks to everyone that registers. And that's two part. One, we get socks on, say it's a thousand people that are doing that event that are pre-qualified to be somewhat living an active lifestyle because they're doing some crazy Red Bull athletic event. Uh, And then also we're gonna benefit from the brand association, develop further credibility, further trust. You know, when you see Red Bull X Endure, it's like, oh shit, like these guys must be legit, you know? Like, um, and so that was kind of phase two is like, how do we partner with brands in our space that are uh, non-competitive, but synergistic in a sense that like we sell to the same customer and we can establish, you know, further credibility and skip the line in essence. For sure. Um, yeah, it's like so that was your brand value. Yeah, for sure. And so I was doing all of this because as a bootstrap founder, I had no money to spend on, on Facebook or, or Instagram or Google. And we didn't spend any money on, on acquisition or paid advertising for the first two years of the business, not a dollar, um, because I didn't know how <laughs> first. And, and I came from the athlete world. So I was like, I'm going to speak to athletes. I'm going to show up where they are and I'm going to meet them where they are and be like, here's the benefit of the sock. And by doing that, yeah, it's a lot of work, but I got to literally like talk to all of our customers, learn about what they liked, didn't like. I got to see in real time, what does a customer do when they reach a huge wall I have set up of sock designs? What I learned was that they're overwhelmed with the amount of choice, right? And so what that tells me online is that we should need to have way better filtering online so that we can narrow the collection size so they don't get, um, so they're not overwhelmed when they're purchasing. So many people would literally walk up to our booth and they would go, I love your socks. I can't make a decision. I just, I need to walk away. I can't buy. They're literally like intimidated by choice. Um, and so that realizes that like, yeah, people get, you know, uh, overwhelmed when there's, uh, when there's an abundance of choice. And so that leads down to like, how do we use maybe a quiz feature online that pre-builds them a customized collection, right? Based on their inputs, takes it down from 200 to sock designs to 30, way more digestible. But I learned that by like, boots on ground at the event, seeing the customer walk away, telling me they want to buy something, mm-hmm. but they can't because they're overwhelmed. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like yeah. the worst situation. And with the quiz too, like it's because one of my questions was going to be, you know, well, hey, so you have an amazing story that really relates to the athletes. And so just because of the com- the authentic community that you guys have, they want to be a part of it. But going one by one doesn't scale. Um, and so my question was going to be like, well, how do you do that today? But it sounds like that personalization quiz is an example of one of those ways to to build that relationship while scaling. Because I bet that the consumer feels like, wow, this brand gets me. You know, they understand what kind of products to recommend based on my needs um, and my passions. So are there any other ways that you're able to communicate um, this voice and continue to scale that message with with potential buyers? Yeah, I think like making the website as accessible as possible. So I'm like really, um, really spend a lot of time like on the flow of our site. Like I'm a, a, a simplicity is king. Like I love the ability to say like, 
a really expansive kind of explanation in five words or less. So like, how do you convey a message very, very clearly, concisely and rapidly? And then also on landing pages or homepages, like how do we start with the largest message and then allow people to scroll and get more of the, the micro details called like macro to micro approach. So like what's the most important thing? And then as they scroll, they can dive deeper. But at any point along the way, if they've got enough, they can click to convert. Um, like how do we just reduce clicks? How do we reduce the amount of work the customer has to do? Everything down from like yesterday, we like, we, when you open the mobile menu, we said like, don't let them, don't make them click to expand the shop. Let's have shop expanded. Like, let's like, let's remove a click. Let's, they're opening the mobile menu because they wanted to, to actually navigate to a, a collection, right? So beyond that, um, really diving into the psychology of the customer too. So what we realize is that a lot of people purchase our product because of it, it's, in their mind, it's a catalyst for action. So like, what I mean by that is like, our product serves more of a purpose than just like a piece of apparel. The fun designs and the messaging behind our brand and the interaction the customers have with our brand, give them an internal sort of inspiration to go for that run or feel confident for that presentation or um, express themselves in a certain way. And so we've used different ways of, of conveying that message of like, you know, you're like one pair away from inspiring your personal best, right? So it's selling, what the socks can do for that person versus you know like what we're actually trying to sell selling the idea selling the mission of what we're trying to accomplish um so everywhere along the way like you're right in the early days you have to do things that don't scale and there's a superpower in that but they have to find ways that you can automate those sort of mundane tasks um but i would say that the brand ambassador network really helps because you know it's over a thousand members we have in there right now and they're out there spreading the good word and so they actually have the time to to like, it's just simple math, right? It's like, I can't myself be out there talking to all these customers, but if I have a thousand people armed with the brand values and understanding, they can talk to four or five people and by extension, that's 5,000. And then can those people talk to three or four more? And then it just kind of, it, it, it creates what I like to call like an organic virality. Um, so I always focus on just more socks on people's feet, more people that know about our story and more people that understand what we're trying to accomplish. And over a long enough period of time, that message just becomes too hard to ignore. Mm -hmm. And and so how about when you guys look at creative to get this message across to people that don't know what Endure is, you know, whether it's through videos, copy, images, advertising, email copy, um, how do you guys handle this process? Is it those ambassadors producing their creative for you guys? Is it an agency? Do you have that in-house or, you know, again, is it an agency where you guys have really good processes? Um, how do you keep that consistent with your creative? Yes, yeah, so we do everything in-house. Like, what I really think like a brand needs to ask themselves, like what are their superpowers? Like what is their competitive advantage? Mm -hmm. I would say ours is like our team is all made up of, of designers and marketers. You know, we're essentially a design and marketing agency that sells socks. Mm -hmm. um, that's our superpower. So like we've always faulted when we've hired agencies to take that on just because our level of competence and, and quality and how fast we want things done can't often be replicated by by agencies so we've had to build out internally which slows us down but in the long term gives us a lot more of a mode as well um, and a lot more leverage but we approach creative from a few different angles so we have you know a contracted videographer a contracted photographer then we also use ugc from our ambassadors we'll pull stuff right from reviews customers are leaving on our site um, we'll repost and anything that's tagged on Instagram for the most part. So showing that like we're going to highlight the community. We want to be real and authentic. We don't want to shift to a direction where like everything has to be curated and look like it's professionally done. It's like 
that's not what people want to see these days. They want to see like are real people using these products and do real people like them. Um, so there's a like you've seen that big shift in the advertising world of the the use of UGC product reviews, testimonials, um, you know, white labeled kind of ads through influencer accounts, stuff like that. Um, but so yeah, we use a wide array um, in terms of conveying the message. Depend on where they are in the marketing funnel, it's going to change, right? So. Um, top of funnel, it might be a little more UGC based, like showing a familiar face or someone that they would identify with to get them into the funnel. Um, and then go a little more curated with some more like, here's the product features, like here's some education. Um, and then from there, try to, to talk more about the inspiration and design side of the product and how it can be inspiring, exciting, hopefully drive an emotional response, kind of the aha moment, which could uh, w- could lead to to the conversion. And look, this is not a science, but this is kind of the rule we try to follow and it's always evolving. But uh, I think like the ultimate takeaway with creative is like, how do you convey a message that's both educational and inspiring that gets the point across in like three to five seconds and it's super difficult. Um, But the only way to truly find it out is just like continually test, right? We're just like not shy with, I think we've posted every day on Instagram for like six years. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, just, just, do, just do the work, you know? Um, um, and so, yeah, just creating as, as much content as possible and getting it out there, testing new channels is kind of what we're all about. I, I think there's something that's really consistent in what you keep saying. And I think that's just like a relentless customer obsession because the aha moment is something that I've always thought about. And we we're always like, you know, asking ourselves the same question again, like, are we sure that's our aha moment? And we, you know, we try and watch what the customers do or people doing trials. And then recently we did an exercise, which was, well, how can we cost the aha moment in other areas of the journey? Is it possible to make it happen earlier in the funnel? Like what is the soonest that we can bring that aha moment to? And it's revealed a lot of things and and it does like for you to be asking yourself those questions, it it does require, um, you know, that, that customer obsession. Um, I still go on the live chat. I still, you know, like just asking customers simple questions like, you know, rate rate your experience from one to 10. I was actually just doing that today. Take a few minutes to do it. Um, so I love that you guys do that. Um, so what were your biggest breakthroughs to go from six figures to seven figures? Like what changed um, at seven figures, you know, after being six figures? And then the same question from seven figures to eight figures like what clicked what, what were both of those gears yeah um so like one to one million dollars so like the six to seven figure point is like that's where you're just grinding you know like it's you're just trying to hit that million dollar it took us about a year and a half to get there first year about 350k in sales second year we did 800 uh over 800k in sales so like some sometime in that second year we, we crossed the one million in total sales um and really what got us there was like, you can do that with like just a founding team with just some like organic channels and like a relentless showing up every day, you know, like finding new ways to sell. I'd say like your one to $1 million should really be about product market fit. And like, you don't need to have any process. I would, I would forego as much business planning as possible. I would forego, um, you know, a lot of paid advertising because in, in that period of time, like your data set and your ability to analyze that after to make informed decisions for future growth is super important. If you muddy it up with paid advertising day one, it's going to be uh, it's going to be skewed heavily. 
Um, so I'd say that like that six to seven figures, you should be focused on being scrappy. Don't worry about like HR policies and building your team and getting your cool office. Like, like I don't know if you can swear, but F all of that. Um, yeah, like I, I just see founders that are like, we need the office and the team and we're going to go raise. Fuck that. Just like ship the product and move faster, move faster. Yeah, it's like so that's, that's not busy on the right things. No, yeah, yeah. It's it's just like, oh, I need my plan. I need to go. It's just, no, you need none of that. You need like, you know, a computer and some hustle. So I'd say like, I would I would focus simply just on like, trying to learn how to sell your product and make money in the first year, build a business model and unit economics that makes sense. From there, you now will have a foundation which you can start to apply some processes and hindsight to. So like really from that, like I'd say like the, the next step would be the one to five million um, where you can do that with a relatively small team, in my opinion, especially in like a D to C apparel. I'm gonna talk my own book. So like other businesses are different, but the apparel space requires a lot of um, moving parts, you know, we're sourcing products, importing, warehousing, shipping. So there's there's a lot of stuff that at a certain scale requires a lot of people. But, you know, up to five million, you can still do it with a team under five people, five, ten people. We did. Um, and that really looks like starting to layer in some level of process. Like, how do we approach things? What channels do we want to consistently post on? How much money do we want to allocate now to paid acquisition that we have some customer data? And again, it can be fairly you know, like it, to do like 2.5 to $5 million is, it's not that much, uh, it's not that much revenue per day, right? Like you don't need to make that much money. So you can still do things that are un, like relatively unscalable um, in terms of like your own fulfillment out of a basement, for example, like you can still do that at like a few million bucks um, regard depending on what the product is. But so I'd say like, it's your time to kind of like start to formulate a plan start to be like what's the team look like do i need to you know if we want to get to eight figures you know do i need to start thinking about management structure and stuff like that and so i say like from the five to ten is where shit starts to get real um it's where you know customer service is a full-time job it's where order packing is like 10 to 12 people um it's where you need an office space because your team is 25 now you know so it's like i'd say that's kind of like the five to ten million point is for some brands maybe not as much for ours it was an inflection point of where like our team had to almost triple Whereas like the rate of growth versus every other thing up to that point was, was like the growth could outpace the amount of people we had to, to hire and resources we had to have. But after the five million, it's like, okay, those started to, the, the gap started to close. We need more people. It's like, it's that point where you have one person that does like five different jobs and then each one of those jobs becomes a full-time thing. Right. And that, that happens almost overnight from that, like five to 10 million mark. Um, and so now it's like, a higher, much higher level of process, layers of management, team members for specific roles, like one person on email, one person on Facebook, one person on social media, one person on managing the warehouse. Like, you know, I so said like all these are full-time jobs where the early days it's like my marketer does it all, right? right. <laughs> um, so that's the complexity and then figuring out how all those moving pieces work, how you hire them, um, how you apply the dollars. Does it, does it make sense now to raise some money to to like add rocket fuel. Um, so we did that in the fall too. So like bootstrapped to eight figures and then raised some money. Um, yeah, so yeah. I, I wanted I wanted to ask on that because um, I totally get what you're talking about. It's like, okay, well, we got from zero to one, you know, one being five million and like to get from one to two, we need double the head count in what we thought we needed. Each department, it's its own department. Um, but our, you know, our cash isn't going to allow us to, you know, do that, do that headcount growth before the revenue growth. Um, and so would you say there's an element of like at that, at that point before you raise the capital, you have to know which fires to let burn, right? Like 
look like we're just not going to be able to you know hire a full-time influencer team or you know we're going to have to focus on on paid marketing because performance is working sure influencer is a great route we know it can work but like we just don't have the manpower to get there or you know we can't hire that agency or that director of marketing we're just going to have to like make it work as is and so you have to like really narrow it down to the essential yeah, I would agree with that. I think like it's a it's a constant exercise of where to apply your focus and resources. And unfortunately, you can't do it all. Um, even when you raise money, you can't do it all. And I think that's why I'm a big fan of like learning how to make money before you raise money is because it teaches you where to apply the dollars. Um, and I think that's like maybe one of the, the things founders find themselves overwhelmed with is the opportunity that they the opportunities they could be missing out on um, where um, generally like you have to stay focused even though there are op- there are other options that you can like really dive into that that will generate revenue and generate growth it's just like can you really apply all your focus to it and if you do will that focus be diverted from the thing that actually makes more revenue right so it's like it's not even a i had this conversation today it's like sometimes the the, the question is not there like the thing you're pondering is not the difference between a good and bad decision is the difference between a good and a good decision, right? So it's like which decision is better, and but they're but they're both good options. So you, um, it's that's kind of the, the the balance you have to to make is like what is the right path and where do I apply my focus, um, and then from there like the business grows, resources grow, and then you can start to invest in these different channels, of course. But uh, yeah, that's kind of like the imperfect answer but it is a it's just it's a a process of like where do you apply your focus that's the challenge with like social media and twitter like you know you see these other brands doing crushing it on tiktok and sharing everything and you know it's like oh we should be on tiktok but you're missing a lot of context like you don't know you know what stage that company's at what kind of resources they have what kind of team do they have you know like other brands don't have the context that you guys are pretty much as you mentioned like a marketing agency um that sells socks and other people watching um might underestimate what it actually takes to to tackle a growth channel so um you know that leads to my next question question which is uh what are some of the patterns that you see that some of the most successful brands have the brands that you look up to um what are the consistencies you see and how they operate i would say that there's a relentless focus on their mission which is like kind of like one of the uh as a early founder i felt like the whole concept of like vision mission values was like goofy and really business school-esque um, but as we've grown, I realize how important it is to have your team and brand anchored around a larger than life goal that has a clear articulation of how you're going to get there and then how you operate on a day to day basis, which is vision, mission, values. Right. So um, I think the brands that do it well is they stay true to that. And by staying true to that, it allows you to do what we've talked about, like stay focused, stay in your lane, make sure you're operating authentically and within the bounds you've set out from the early days. And then beyond that, I think like they're continually asking themselves, like, what do our customers want and how can we improve that? Like, I think the brands that maybe go astray are the ones that think they know better than the consumer. Um, And they do things because it makes them cool or they saw a good idea and they lose focus. I think a lot of it comes down to focus. because there's like, as you grow and you have more resources and more time, like the opportunities become vast, but it doesn't mean they're all good opportunities, right? And a lot of them are bad. Um, so 
Yeah, I don't know. Like if I look to brands that I admire, I would say it's a relentless pursuit on their mission, continual product innovation. So always shipping new stuff, always thinking about how it can be improved, asking for feedback and not doing things because they're cool, doing things because they're the right thing to do. Um, and then just taking a long-term view, you know, it's not growth at all costs. It's growth that makes sense. It's business sustainability. It's business fundamentals. It's unit economics. It's profitability. Uh, it's knowing when to take the leap and invest in things that make sense for short-term profit suppression, but long-term gain. And just really starting to like transition into professional business people, you know, like, and just like make the right choices and ability to, as you grow, know that you're learning more, but you're also, you never, like, you just, you don't know what you don't know. What I've always learned right. is that like, as, as I've met more people that are way ahead of me, is that like, they're equally uh, they're, they're also just figuring it out. You know I mean? These are billionaires. These are people that I look up to, um, and they've run successful companies. And then you sit down with them and they're like, Oh yeah. Like we're just, we're, I'm figuring it out too. Like I'm just testing. It's just the, in business, there's just, there's just levels to the game. There's no end point. You know I mean? You can't win. There's no winning business, right? Like, cause there's always something bigger. There's always someone doing something different. And so like, what I admire is the people that do it because they're passionate about it, not because they're trying to win, not because they're trying to get a quick buck. I really like the people that are like building businesses because it's creating opportunities for others. It's filling a real problem or it's solving a real problem. And it's uh, and they're passionate and excited about it. You know, I love what I do. Um, like I, I, I built what I did because like I wanted to continue to love what I do, you know, so if there wasn't, wasn't continual learning, like it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as fun. It's just like, you know, mountain biking, like there's always a bigger trail. There's always a harder, a harder trail and a harder level to step onto. And I love what you mentioned, because it is like, there's this weird paradox in business where the more, you know, the more you realize that the less, you know, um, because again, the challenges get bigger, more complex. Um, so that's why, um, that's why principles like the ones you've been talking about are just so important to have. And also love what you mentioned about the values in the company, because if you preach that you treat your customers like that, why also not treat your team um, in the same way? So, you know, coming here towards the end, I wanted to talk a bit about production um, for the people that are listening and are wondering, OK, well, you grew the marketing in lockstep like that. How did how is production able to follow along, especially before the funding um, with such you know, high growth year over year. How, how, how did that change from the very beginning until today? Yeah, so like I kind of fumbled into a unique business model. So like um, in the early days, I started selling socks. And then a, a, one of my sponsors I had when I was cycling was like, hey, like, can you make socks for our company? And I was like, I mean, I, I, I guess, I don't know why not. And that kind of like, that was the, the, the basis for a white label business that we spun up on the side. And we still have as a, as a, as a, a brand we call custom labs and so what that does is it kind of flips our current model like the endure model on its head and it's a pre-order based business at high volume wholesale to the consumer so like it's a cash flow generating business whereas like you come to me and say hey rob i want 100 pairs of socks and here's the design um, or we design it for them and we capture the sale and you know we uh, ship the product and but we've had we've had prepayment 30 days in advance, 30 day production time, 60 days of free cash flow. So right there on that day one where I get the, the sale before before obviously production time um, um, and delivery time, as well as the terms we get on it, I'm able to save the amount that I know I've made in profit, reinvest it in the brand side or buy more inline inventory. So I, I really spun up kind of a cash flow generating size of the business to offset 
the amount of inventory we'd have to hold on hand for the inline side. And I really looked at that for the longest time as my investor, you know, it's like it was, you know, since day one, we've been profitable and we've been in a positive cash flow, like even to this day, um, which is very, very uncommon in the e-commerce space for a brand like ours that has, you know, suppressed gross margins due to high shipping costs as well as product costs. You know, generally our businesses are between 50 and 60 percent gross margin. And then you layer on all the marketing costs and people costs and infrastructure and everything like that. So um, these are not razor thin, but thin margin businesses. Right. So like the, you have to get creative on how you can turn different expense lines in the profit centers. And we've got creative there. Um, but in terms of production, yeah, we looked at like, how can we use our business model to sell in other ways that can generate cash flow as well as increase volume with our manufacturing partners that then lower our product costs, right? So it was all like this huge, not huge, but this like master plan in hindsight that like benefited us in, in multiple ways and created a larger moat. So that's not possible to do in all business models, but I would push back on most founders that say they need to raise money and say like, have you thought of every other way you could make money? Like, what are your skills, right? Even during COVID when like it looked, our factory shut down for a period of time and it looked like things were really bleak. I was like, push comes to shove and we need to make money. Like we're designers and marketers. We can spin up an agency and right. like, start to generate some revenue. You know what I mean? So right. like we weren't going to sit down. We were, we were going to make money one way or another. Um, and so I'm just a big fan of creativity and always thinking like, are there other ways to accomplish this goal without the traditional method? I, I love that. Um, you know, Tim Ferriss actually says, uh, he mentions this one thing, which is, oh, doing the exercise of like, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? You know, a lot of people freak out. Um, you know, you're building a company out in public, the social pressure of what people are going to think. And, you know, that sort of creates this misconception in your head of what the worst case scenario really is. And you sit down and you ask yourself, what is the worst thing that can actually happen here? It's like, that you know how to make money in other ways. If you're an entrepreneur, you know, you have these skills. Like, let's say you're growing your brand because you're growing up the TikTok. If your e-commerce brand fails, like you can always just spin up some consulting, some agency. And there always is a way for, you know, that's what entrepreneurs do. They always find a way against all odds. It's just that, you know, we read about these venture capital and these companies racing right out of the gates. Um, but there's always a way. So now that you've raced, um, how do you see the competitive landscape um, shifting? Uh, you know, obviously racing, you're in a much, you, you can be in a much more offensive position than, than you previously were. Um, so how do you see the space evolving and, and shifting and, and what are you guys um, gonna do differently now? Yeah, I would say it shifts the opportunities that are available for us. Like first and foremost, like we can front load hires and for an, and an ability to move quicker. So like if we've been, bifurcating somebody's time where it's it would really be best served two people in that role like we can do that and understand there's going to be a short-term suppression on earnings but long-term gain um so i'd be looking at like building out the team and product obviously so like more stock on hand so there's less sold out opportunities um a more robust and expansive team so we can move quicker so that's that, those are the obvious ones some of the non-obvious ones would be look at like um verticalizing our business like is there a way to bring a level of production um, in a North America that's owned to move quicker and also de-risk? Is there an ability to go further down uh, down the line and spin up some sort of niche D2C fulfillment center here in Canada that allows us to utilize a portion of it and the other portion by other D2C brands 
than kind of like using the Amazon model of turning like an expense line into a profit center. So I'm thinking through like not only how we can make more money, but how can we reduce the amount we're spending to just become an even more profitable company? Um, and then the third thing I would look at is just, you know, M&A, you know, which is something I've never really thought about before. But as we grow, it becomes, again, coming down to focus and where's our time and resources best applied. We have a lot of experience now where I'd say like our team is geared for taking something that's already from zero to one and taking it from, you know, two to 100 or wherever we want to go and really like apply our best practices, resources and team on that. So like I would say I'm past the point where I want to start new things for the most part. I want to like look at things that are working, acquire that that thing that's working or the team or both and roll them in and say, like, how can we together move quicker, especially if they're um, you know, like a synergistic product line or someone that we're, we're, we're trying to sell to the same customer. Maybe we're just bidding each other up in ads and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, you know, sure. how, like, you know it's like that, the, whole thing of like, the same talent. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the whole thing of like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So it's like, I'm looking at opportunities where going together makes sense. Um, so I'd say those are like the three things I'm focusing on that, you know, raising capital and having resources and, and some knowledge now, like I consider myself somewhat, um, competent in business. You know, I, I do know what I don't know, but I've been in it for six years and I've got a, a good team around me of people that if I don't know, I can ask. Um, and so I'm, I'm utilizing that to just see like, how can I step back, take the 30,000 foot view of the business and really apply that, that, that know-how, the resource and really create opportunities. That's, that's how I'm looking at it. You ask me in like a month, it might change. Uh, like I'm, I'm very open to rethinking and changing my perspective. But um, yeah, I've been pondering, like we've, the, the round closed just a few months ago, right? So I haven't had the money for a long time. So I'm really thinking how are we thoughtfully deploy it because we're also profitable. So it's like, we, you know, aren't using that money to stay alive. We, we have a self-sustaining business. So like, it's a unique position to be in where most people raise money out of desperation. We raised it out of a point of strength um, of like how we can use that to kind of further skip the line and, and capture more markets. So, that's yeah. how I'm thinking about it. Um, and yeah, we're excited. Yeah. It's, an, it's a fun yeah, time. No, that's exciting, Rob. And, um, you know, w- one of the last things I want to ask is like, um, you've, you've always, you've always reached a new level. You've always been progressing as an entrepreneur personally. Um, what is your day to day look like? What are like some of your habits, routines, responsibilities, things you do in the day to day, whether personal or for business that, are the things that have worked for you to be able to like, you know, keep the energy levels and, and, and stay level headed to, to continue progressing as, just as a being in general. Yeah. I think like two things. One thing like young founders always send, tend to ask me is like, how do I approach work-life balance? And what I always say back to them is like, if that's something you're thinking about now, I would question whether or not like what you want to get into business for is the right reasons. Like I love what I do. So I don't really think about needing time off from it. And I look at everything else I do in my life is like, how does it all filter back into making me better at business or a better human being? And I call it like work-life synergy. Um, So that's like first and foremost, in terms of routines, like I just love like business. So I like, I love consuming podcasts. I love reading books. I love, I, I just truly am like really passionate about just the whole business space. So for me, it doesn't feel like work, but I'm just continually learning like i love chatting with people like you and and reaching out and doing stuff like this because even when i have to like think through and, and explain to you why we do what we do i learn things you know it's like 
you truly understand something not only when you can do it but when you can teach it and so when i'm talking about it i'm like oh shit i actually know what i'm talking about sometimes <laughs> whereas like yeah, yeah, syndrome, yeah. And, like other days like creeping is like do i know anything right um so like i in terms of routines like i'm not like one of those people that has like a by the hour thing and like some crazy stuff some things i do like to do is like regular exercise i'm a big believer that like physical and mental health are like the two most important things for success as an entrepreneur if you don't have those on lock like how are you expected to take a, a business to the moon right um so i really focus on getting exercise every day and that leads to like mental clarity for me um i do a you lot of biking like, anymore i do but not as much i've because like it's one of those things that like i kind of beat to death in the sport that i like mm -hmm. needed time off and to me, mountain biking still represents competition. Whereas like I'm so full on in business that like the sports I do, I want to reach more of a flow state. So For like sure. I do a lot of running, I get on the road bike a lot. So I still enjoy cycling, but I try not to do things because I, I get on the mountain bike. I'm like, shit, I think I can still do this, you know? <laughs> and, like, yeah, yeah. And now, You're going to end now, up back over there. Yeah. Yeah. And now I've got like some free time and some money. I'm like, Oh, maybe I'll like just take another stab at it. I'm like 31, yeah. like, just like some washed up idiot on the hill. But, um, but, uh, so I, I try to like get, I, I enjoy like doing some, I, I've recently got into tennis, which I thought was like mm -hmm. the dorkiest sport in the world, but it's super <laughs> fun and it's super hard. Um, so you get I do out that. There. Yeah, you get out there. And so I, I do a lot of that. And then like a day to day, you know, I get up six or seven in the morning, chip away at some stuff. Like when I'm in the office, so we, we work in the office, we're, we're a team here. We have some remote workers, but the majority of our team is here. I like to be available for my team when I'm here or like on networking calls. I don't really do a lot of my like deep work when I'm in the office. My job I realize is like now that we're a larger team, I have direct reports and I'm not really doing the day to day stuff. I'm really focusing on like what the future holds, um, building the organization, allocating capital, um, learning as much as possible. I, I, I say like my job is to have one really good idea a month, <laughs> you mm -hmm, know, and like that's sure. like that's what I say my job is. And so in order to have that good idea, I need to have a ton of conversations. I need to do a ton of reading. Um, I need to do a lot of thinking and reflecting. I need to do a lot of analyzing. So I, I spend a lot of my time outside of the office doing that. And then when I'm here, I'm just problem solving. I'm helping others. So I get super in the weeds on different strategies we're doing really from that, trying to take that 30,000 foot view and say like, what are you missing? Right. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, like, yeah, I exercise. I have a, a young a young boy, a toddler, he's 21 months. So that's like my second startup. He's a, he's a, yeah. he's a lot of work and it's super fun. Um, yeah. and then, yeah, just a lot of, I have a sauna, which I really enjoy. I do that every night. That helps just with stress relief and sleep. Um, yeah. and then just nerd down on the odd tech. I got an aura ring recently and just kind of stuff like that. But, um, no, I, I love that. I think something you mentioned there of like, try to make a big decision a week or something like that a day. Um, I think uh, Jeff Bezos has this one, which is like, you know, I think I read it in one of his reports, uh, actually one of his interviews on YouTube. And I think it was like, you know, my job, my job is to make three big decisions. Um, I think it was every week, every quarter, or every year or something like that. And I actually did that exercise with the team where we said, let's look back at the last year and what were really like the three big decisions that we made that shifted the business. And in fact, yeah, there are, you know, it wasn't 10 plus um, decisions that really cost. It's an 80, 20 rule, you know, like 20% of the decisions in the year cost 80% of the impact. Um, but yeah, um, Rob, you know, we just want to know what's next for you. Uh, what's next for Endure and how can people get in touch with you and, and keep up with you and Endure? 
Yeah, what's next is uh, just continuing to chip away. I think we've got big goals. There's nothing monumental we're working on other than just continual expansion of our line business. You know, we're pretty stoked on what we offer and just how do we get that on, on more people. Um, so yeah, in, in terms of me, I'm pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Just Rob Fraser, you'll find me there. Uh, and then if anyone got any value out of this or wants to connect, shoot me a DM. I try to make myself pretty available. Or if you want to try the best socks in the world, hit up our site, enduroapparel.com. Um, join our email list to get a bit of a discount off your first purchase. And I mean, you're doing yourself a favor at that point. They're the best socks ever. Trust me, if you don't believe me, if you, if you get them, you don't like them, DM me and I'll, I'll, I'll personally make sure you get a refund because they are great and I stand by our product. So um, yeah, man, like honestly, I appreciate having me on. It's super fun to chat about these things. In closing, just anyone out there listening that's me pondering getting started, I would say just start. Like literally, I, I had no resources or even like, I don't know, permission to start. Like I, I shouldn't have gotten to this point. You know, I really just decided like, hey, I'm gonna start a business. I don't care. You know, that's the beautiful thing about entrepreneurship is permissionless. So I'd say like, throw out the business plan and actually just get started if you're pondering. And if you're kind of in the weeds right now, hitting your head against the wall, I'd say like, just stay in the game, keep going, you know, like reach out, solve your problems. Um, and then if you're ahead of me, reach out and tell me how you got there. <laughs> yeah. I want to learn from you. So, uh, but yeah, I appreciate uh, being able to kind of share about how we've done and I'm just, yeah, just excited about what the, what the future holds. Yeah. Thank you for being here, Rob. Um, there you have it. Another episode of DTC pod and one takeaway for me, um, which is always a good reminder is just show up. Um, so tons of valuable nuggets. Thank you, Rob. Um, and hopefully we'll have.